Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today, as always, by Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Well, it's been a a bad week. I don't think we can get away from the fact that this has been a, a terrible week for developments in the world. The, the Russian invasion, they've uh, failed to make their, I think, what they hoped would be a blitzkrieg victory, and they are now systematically attacking major Ukrainian cities, killing civilians, and uh, the situation there is looking increasingly dire from both a humanitarian and a military perspective as far as the Ukrainians are concerned. We said last week when we recorded this podcast that the news was still pretty fresh that we didn't know. Obviously, there were so many uncertainties about how this would develop and what the end result would be. But let's kick off. I think there's still the fog of war we talk about and the uncertainties that come with any kind of large-scale military activity uh, waging war in the continent of Europe is something we hope we'd never see. It was my father's birthday this week. He and my mother both fought in the Second World War, and we all thought that as things developed more recently, we thought that we had put the idea of war in Europe behind us. But apparently that is not the case, and uh, we've got to navigate our way through this. And in that context, it obviously, first of all, does seem a little if you like, uh, strange to be talking about what's happening to investments in a week when these uh, terrible scenes are uh, evident on our TV screens. But we're going to press on. We do have to tackle this issue. It's very important. There are a lot of results this week, by chance as well. Uh, And so this may run over longer than normal, but I hope you will uh, indulge us with that. So having said that, uh, Simon, let's kick off. We're recording this on Friday lunchtime. And as it happens, the Uh, The markets are down quite sharply this week. I think that has a lot to do with the news about the fact that there has been an attack on the Ukrainian nuclear installation. And that obviously creates uh, a lot of fears about what might happen as a result of that. I think it's actually, uh, from what I've read, it's actually not in any way damaged the, uh, the, the nuclear power plant. But anyway, it's symptomatic of the kind of news we're going to get out of Ukraine. There's going to be bad news coming. There's no doubt about that. So in that context, Simon, let's talk first about the markets. And perhaps you can give us your take on talking to clients and so on about what's been going on this week as far as investors are concerned. Sure. Well, let's start with the numbers for what they're worth. So for the first four trading days of the week, the investment companies index found itself in negative territory, down 2.1%. That compared with a decline of 3.4% for the UK market in the form of the FTSE All Show. In terms of the sector average discount for investment companies, that unsurprisingly widened out. It went from about 5.9% to 6.8%. But as as you just mentioned, Jonathan, obviously, as we record this, uh, the UK market's taking another leg down, about 3% or so at this precise moment in time. So very much in negative territory for the week. But of course, you're entirely right that these are you know, deeply troubling times. And the fact that we have Putin vowing that he's seeking a total victory in Ukraine is, is clearly very disturbing. And, and it's the, the key market focus. And it's not just the first order impact of what the Russian invasion means. I mean, we've obviously seen the oil price uh, now exceed $120 a barrel. Uh, the wheat price on the week, I think, is up about 40% the last time I looked. But it's the second order impacts as well. A lot of speculation in terms of what will happen to global economic growth. Only about a month or so ago, I think everyone was pretty positive on the prospects for global economic growth this year. As we've seen a kind of post-COVID bounce back here, big question mark over how that will play out now, particularly in the context of Europe. European uh, economic prospects have certainly dimmed. But it is a global issue. If you look at countries such as China, for instance, you know, significant energy importers and to see such a big hike in energy prices, clearly bad news for their economic recovery. A lot of speculation by the market in terms of how the central banks, and in particular the, the Federal Reserve, respond to this. Again, only a week or two ago, there was all this speculation that we'd see a series of hikes. I think that's more likely than not, but maybe not to the same degree that was perhaps forecast a week or two ago. But clearly, as I said, very troubling times. And for the investment management industry, a series of challenges and headwinds to navigate as well. You know, we talk a lot about ESG and how it's become so prevalent in in people's thinking and how that's been a real theme over a number of years. 
Uh, and then when you look at the context of what's going on in Ukraine, that has very, very real implications for how investment managers are uh, discussing prospects with their respective portfolio companies and the exposure that those companies have in terms of their own business practices with Russia and other connected countries. So lots of moving parts to this. Yes, it's a very complicated issue. And I think last week we said that one thing we could be pretty clear about is that over the next few weeks, we're going to see quite significant volatility. And if you look at the daily movements in the markets, particularly in the equity markets, well, also in the bond markets, to be honest, uh, we've seen some very sharp up and down moves. Uh, and in the equity case of the equity markets, we've seen some really radically, uh, a very high degree of dispersion amongst performance of individual stocks and indeed individual investment trusts. So some have been up quite a lot, others have been down quite a lot, but it changes from day to day. So there's actually an, a lot of volatility in there as well. And that I'm sure is, will continue for some time until at least we can see the parameters of where this first phase of military action is going to end. Uh, but as you say, there are lots of second order effects, which in a way are probably more important. It's often said, and it has been said many times in the last few days, that you know the stock market in developed world historically you know, has been able to go through these phases of military action, of, of war, and come out on the other side. It tends to be short-term disruption. But on the whole, the world goes on, companies continue to trade, and so on. So it is a complex area, but we are going to be peering through the fog for a little while longer. And I think that volatility will certainly continue. So let's move on and talk about some corporate activity. And we might as well start with, I guess, the investment trust that's been the most visible casualty of all this, which is JP Morgan Russian Securities. This is a trusted investor, obviously, in Russian companies and companies that do business in Russia to a lesser extent. Well, tell us what's happened with them this week, Simon. It's not been a good week for them, obviously. No, it's been a very, very difficult period. I mean, again, just to put some numbers on it, I mean, year to date, their share price is down over 80%. And that, that decline has come in, in the last month for very obvious reasons. I mean, they've made several announcements over the last week or so. Just to cover those announcements off, there have been several changes to the board. Two non-executive directors have stood down. They've also provided uh, some colour in terms of, of the portfolio. So as at the end of February, about 49% of the portfolio was held in locally listed, so i.e. Russian listed stocks, which obviously they haven't been able to trade for some time. 40% were in holdings in ADRs and GDRs, which until relatively recently you could still trade those. But now I think that ceased as well. And they also had about 10% in cash or so. The issue with all this is how do you value that kind of portfolio when so much of it is not tradable at any one point in time. What JP Morgan Asset Management have turned around and said, well, they waive their investment management fee, so they're not taking a fee on it, which I think is entirely uh, appropriate. The investment trust has a dividend uh, to be paid on the 11th of March, so that will be honoured, but then they will cease paying any uh, additional dividends, I think, again, for good reason. And they've taken on an alternative valuation method as well. They were trying to price the portfolio to an index, but I think that index has stopped trading as well. So that may prove tricky. So I think the idea of this particular investment trust providing um, you know, accurate NAVs clearly becomes impossible. By coincidence, JP Morgan Russian Securities faces, I think it's an annual continuation vote at its AGM on the day that we're recording, so uh, being the 4th of March. And it will be interesting to see what the outcome of that particular vote is. I mean, what I can tell you in terms of trading this one, this particular company, you can still trade it or at this precise moment in time, you can still trade it on the London Stock Exchange. But actually, a lot of institutional investors and wealth managers and the like will have taken a step back. They won't be trading it. So a lot of the trade that is going through will just be retail uh, investors. But we'll see how long that continues. Okay, so that's, uh, well, I don't know whether it's cruel luck or not that it's uh, the continuation vote happens today. It will be interesting to see what happens there. I mean, there will be a lot of pressure from any institutional shareholders to pull out of it, I imagine, uh, even if they can't actually realise uh, some of the value in the, they can at least try to get rid of the shares, I suppose. But if there's no market, it's going to be difficult for them. So, I mean, it could be a terminal event. Uh, the way that sentiment is running, certainly, and the, the political reaction to what's happened in Ukraine you know, the sanctions and everything else, you know, I would have thought this is going to have a very tricky future, this particular uh, investment trust. Uh, to remind us, you know, how big it was and how big it is now, taking some sort of value off the screen, even if you can't, you know, trade a lot of shares at that particular price. Yeah, it was a decent size investment company, actually. So at the start of this year, so 2022, JP Morgan Russian Securities had a market cap of about £300 million. And in fact, assets were higher than that, about 340 or so. So it's obviously fallen a long way over the last few months. And bizarrely, if I look at the AIC screen, for example, it says that it's actually trading at a premium. 
Is that, uh, should one read anything into that? I mean, there will be some residual value, you'd imagine, even if uh, it goes out of business. But um, that's just a sort of technical thing, presumably, uh, to do with the way that the market makers are treating this particular trust. Is that right? Yeah, I just, I, I'd be very wary of any NAV for, for this particular investment trust at the moment, because it's an, an impossible task. I mean, who knows what its portfolio is worth, frankly. So obviously, JP Morgan Russian Securities is in the eye of the storm. It's actually been around for a long time, this trust, 30 years or more. In the 1990s is when it first came to the market. And actually, it's if you've got in at the right time, it's been a very good performer at certain times and a very bad performer at other times. It's obviously, a lot is related to the fact that uh, Russia's economy is dominated by commodities, and therefore it tends to be cyclical anyway. But of course, the other reminder is that you know, only last week I attended a presentation by the uh, academics uh, Dimson, Marsh and Staunton, who do the long-term, you know, asset uh, returns, investment returns going back to 1900. And they're always keen to remind us that uh, when you're looking at the historical performance of equities and bonds and so on, you have to allow for the fact that there have been at least two cases this century when uh, stock markets in a particular country have actually gone to zero. And Russia was one of them back in 1917 and China also after the Second World War. So it's not uncommon that uh, stock markets can actually disappear. And one has to wonder what the future for the Russian stock market is at uh, the present. But again, this is just something we just don't know. It all depends on how this all pans out over time. Let's move on then and talk about another trust which has found itself caught up in this in quite a significant way. And that is Fidelity Emerging Markets, ticker F-E-M-L, And as we know, Fidelity only took over this trust towards the end of last year. It was formerly known as Genesis Emerging Markets, and uh, it turns out that they've been quite heavily exposed in Russia. So can you tell us more about that, Simon? That's right. Well, they had an announcement this week. And basically, as a house, Fidelity International have ceased all investment in Russia and Belarus and instated a kind of group-wide prohibition on new or additional purchases or any securities from those markets. And to be fair, you'll find that absolutely commonplace across the whole investment management industry for, again, very obvious reasons. But in the case of Fidelity Emerging Markets, you're right, they have had exposure to Russian equities. So at the end of January, that weighting was about 16% or so of the portfolio. That compares with a 3% index weighting again at that stage. Now, they have a fair value committee. And again, that's something that most investment management houses will absolutely have. And they have written down all Russian listed securities to zero that are not currently tradable and for which there is no price discovery. Um, And that's been reflected in the daily published NAV Fidelity for Fidelity Emerging Markets. So as at the 2nd of March, the fund's aggregate exposure to Russian securities had been reduced to 0.04% of NAV. Okay, so this is uh, very unfortunate for them, I guess. You, if you take on a new mandate with the promise of doing better than the previous incumbents, this is, one has to say, uh, slightly unfortunate. I'm sure they, uh, obviously, they didn't expect, as many people did not expect, that this situation would develop in terms of Russia. And, and Russian equities were looking uh, very cheap for a whole number of reasons, even before this started. So what's been the kind of market reaction to that then? How have the share prices performed, given this development? So... Emerging markets in general, we've seen kind of discounts widen out for obvious reasons. In the case of Fidelity Emerging Markets, though, I mean, I've got it on my screen, or certainly at the close of Thursday, it was on about an 18% discount. That compared with an average of about 13% or so for that kind of global emerging markets subsector. And that's, uh, if one believes those numbers, I mean, they must perhaps thinking that there is some residual value there in in what they own. But that sort of number, how does that compare with historic discounts on emerging market trusts? What was Genesis trading at? I can't remember. It was about 10%, wasn't it, uh, on average, something like that? It would have been narrow. So certainly over the last 12 months, uh, which obviously there's a lot of that period would have been in the hands of Genesis, that ad, their average discount was is about 8% or so. So they have seen a, a derating. Across the whole peer group, the average discount for global emerging markets funds, probably about 7% over the last 12 months, and they're currently at 13%. Right, which is quite significant in a way. And I think it reflects, obviously, a whole range of factors, some of them directly affected by what's happened in the Ukraine, others by the dollar has been strengthening, and that's historically not very good for emerging markets, a bit of flight to safety, and so on. Uh, well, let's move on and talk then about uh, the next trust that is relevant in this context, and that's Bearings Emerging EMEA Opportunities, ticker BEMO. Tell us the story there as far as this uh, latest development is concerned. So they provided an update this week. And uh, it's worth remembering they actually changed their investment mandate 
only in the last year or so. So now they're focused on Eastern Europe, which obviously incorporates Russia, Middle Eastern and uh, Africa. So uh, following the change of investment mandate, the weighting to Russia had fallen below historic levels. But obviously, given the limitations on the sale of Russian securities, they basically look to, to value all those at zero. Again, this is what we're seeing from all these names. Now, at the end of February, Russian securities represented about 6.3% of the NAV, and that was adjusted to reflect at that stage the board's assessment uh, of fair value. But going back to the end of January, um, before all this blew up, they had about 28% also exposed to Russia. So that sort of implies that this change has actually you know, helped them in a way and that the negative impact has been somewhat less than it might otherwise be. And how are those shares trading? I mean, there must be a question mark about some of the other things they hold in that portfolio. Should they're not? If it's uh, primarily uh, Eastern Europe, that must have been had some impact, you would think. So uh, tell us what's uh, happened in terms of the market as far as this particular trust is concerned. Well, again, they've been derated. So even on that kind of revised NAV basis, they're trading on about a 25% discount or so at the moment, or they were certainly at the close of Thursday's trade. And that compares with an average of about 12% over the previous 12 months. But yes, I mean, the portfolio, there's quite a bit of exposure to, to Middle Eastern names, as well as Africa as well. So it wasn't a, a one-trick pony by any stage. Right. But as you say, there have been a lot of changes recently. I mean, I'm looking at the last published fact sheet and they, Russia was still the largest component, followed by South Africa and Saudi Arabia. So actually not much exposure to Eastern Europe as it happens. OK, we'll move on and talk about BlackRock Greater Europe Investment Trust, ticker BRGE. Tell us what the story is there, please. Yeah, so BlackRock Greater Europe Investment Trust has for many, many years had an allocation to developing Europe. So they made an announcement this week uh, just to really put the, the market's mind at rest of where they stood. So as at the 1st of March, they only had 1% of the portfolio, and that was valued about £5 million or so, invested in securities with exposure to Russian companies. Now, the board have said that the manager is monitoring the, the guidelines issued by regulators to make sure that they comply with all applicable sanctions laws. But it's worth noting that, again, at the end of January, Russia accounted for about 6% of, of the portfolio. So not insignificant at that stage. Yes. And again, just looking at the last fact sheet, which again was the end of January. I mean, most of the largest holdings, they're all in Western Europe, essentially. France, Netherlands, Switzerland, and so on. So that has protected them to some extent. And uh, those shares, presumably, therefore, are trading rather better than the, the other ones you mentioned so far. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, again, at the close of Thursday, they were probably trading around NAV, to be honest. And that compares with an average premium rating over the previous 12 months of about 2%. So BlackRock Greater Europe has performed well and basically has traded on a, a better rating than its peer group for a period of time. OK, so next up is Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income Trust, ticker JEFI. We had cause to talk about them only last week, I think, because of their proposed change in their uh, arrangements for uh, continuation and redemptions. But uh, what about their exposure to uh, to Russia? Yep. So as at the 1st of March, their direct and indirect exposure to Russian listed securities represented just 0.4% of NAV. They didn't have any exposure to Ukrainian uh, securities. Again, just to put some context around that, as at the 23rd of February, the portfolio's exposure came in about 6.3% at that stage. So since then, they've obviously sold down positions as well as seen quite dramatic price declines. Yes, I think it's worth making that point, isn't it? That They may be saying, well, we've only got 0.1% in it now, but actually that may just reflect that the things they have owned have, have lost all that value. It's not as if they've been actively selling ahead of this uh, particular unfortunate, miserable development that we've seen. Uh, though I see they did actually exit uh, from Sherbank on the 24th of February, which was immediately after the warning of the invasion. Let's talk about Templeton Emerging Markets then. As you mentioned them earlier, ticker TEM, obviously a very large emerging markets uh, investment trust, been around longer than any other, I think. What's happened with them? What have they had to say? Yeah, again, they just told the market that as at the 1st of March, their exposure to Russia came in at 0.65% of NAV, so a very small stop position. They had about uh, four or five holdings at that stage that were essentially US listings or ADRs, GDRs, but a very small part of their portfolio. Right. So another case perhaps where you know the damage has been done effectively now. And Templeton Emerging Markets obviously have been around a long time, a large trust. Uh, and that too, uh, the discount is that has uh, been pretty weak anyway, but how has been affected by the news uh, from Russia? And Ukraine. 
So it's trading on about a 14% discount or so at the moment, and that compares with an 8% average discount over the previous 12 months. So just before we leave this issue of trust that are exposed directly to Russia or indirectly to Russia, can you just tell us, I mean, if any of these trusts had some kind of discount control mechanism, this kind of development that what's happened in Ukraine would certainly count as a sort of force majeure, I imagine, and would not lead boards to uh, necessarily to rush in and buy back the shares when they move to a big discount. Perhaps you can tell us, uh, I mean, I'm sure that's right, but are there any trusts in here which have any kind of discount control measures with them? It's, it's not very common, I imagine, in uh, emerging markets. No, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, BlackRock Greater Europe does, but as we've already established, it's a relatively small part of what they do. They are mo- mainly focused on mainstream European equities, uh, some blue chip names. But in the emerging market peer group, certainly amongst the names that we've mentioned, I mean, historically, many of them have been active in terms of using buybacks to ensure their discounts don't go too wide. And obviously, Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income famously did have that annual redemption facility that they wish to change the rules on. And then this is all subject to review, obviously. But no, nothing aside. I mean, look, I think it'd be very difficult to pursue a buyback program protecting a particular discount now, purely because you're not entirely sure what these positions are valued at. But I think as a general point, and I think one of the things that have come out from these various announcements that we've had over the last week or so, is that exposure to Russia, with one or two exceptions, was relatively low and clearly because of the price moves is now de minimis. So despite the fact that they have all been derated to a greater or lesser extent, with the honourable exception, obviously, of JP Morgan Russian securities, that the actual exposure to Russia is pretty low. Can I ask you then, finally, of these trusts that we've talked about, How many of them, if any, are actually in the FTSE indices? Quite a number of them, to be perfectly honest. So, you know, to get into the FTSE all share, you probably need a market cap of about £200 million. So things like Templeton Emerging Markets has a market cap of about £1.8 So they'll almost certainly be in the mid cap. um, And there'll be other emerging market names alongside it. So JP Morgan Emerging Markets being a case in point. So I'd say the majority of the names that we talked about today, if not all, frankly, will be constituents of the FTSE All Share. So this, to some extent, will have had a bearing on the way that the markets have moved and the way the Investment Trust Index has moved, because this will have an impact on that, will it not? Because that covers most of the shares that are in the FTSE indices. So, well, talking about indices, let's uh, take a small diversion here. And before we talk about the impact more widely, uh, let's talk about some index changes. The UK index changes, they have regular reviews and which I think, Simon, you've often played a significant part yourself. And can you tell us what the latest announcements about the FTSE indices are? So this was the latest quarterly review. The results were announced this week. And in fact, they will be implemented after the market close on the 18th of March. So coming up in a few weeks time. So in terms of investment trusts, and and clearly this review is about the whole of the UK marketplace, but just focusing in on investment trusts, in terms of the changes, Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon will be dropping down from the mid cap, the FTSE 250, it will go to the FTSE small cap. Uh, and that reflects that it's had a NAV decline. It's seen its share price move from a premium to a discount over the previous six months. Moving in the opposite direction is Ruffer Investment Company and Temple Bar Investment Trust. Both those investment trusts have actually performed quite well of late. Temple Bar obviously focused on UK equities, but we're very much with a value approach, which has served it well. And we're also seeing a new entry straight into the mid cap in the form of Urban Logistics REIT. And that followed its recent migration from AIM to the main market. We've also seen two investment companies come into the FTSE small cap, so automatically become part of the FTSE all share. And that's Ashoka India Equity Investment Trust, uh, which had a very strong year last year. And also Pantheon Infrastructure, which, again, we talked about at the time of its IPO back in November last year when it raised £400 million. So it might be just worth reminding listeners here that These uh, index changes, people know in advance when they're coming up. And uh, of course, if you go into a particular index, you then become investable by the index funds that track that particular index. And that normally gives a a boost to demand. But on the other hand, these moves are often anticipated. But I imagine that in this particular case, what's happened in the last week, if they kind of did the numbers again today, would they come up with the same answer, I wonder? But uh, do you think this is going to have a material impact on the pricing at least of uh, any of these uh, movers? It's a good question. And obviously, there are certain people out there who do like to kind of play games with index changes. I mean, as a rule of thumb, I think moving between the mid cap and the small cap in either direction doesn't tend to have too much of a historical bearing. 
in terms of your rating, in terms of demand. But where it does matter is if you leave the all share or leave the small cap, and we haven't got any investment companies in that state this time round. But in terms of those being promoted into the, the all share, so I mentioned Ashoka and Pavin Infrastructure, then we will see a significant pickup in demand for their shares. And it's worth noting that the passive funds will only look to you know build their holding as at the 18th of March. They don't tend to do that in advance. Uh, because obviously they're not constituents of the index until that moment in time. So it all has to be done at that moment. Um, but, you know, Panfin infrastructure is quite a decent size. As I mentioned, it raised 400 million back in November. And Ashoka India Equity has also done well and raised additional capital. But again, historically, you would expect to see significant demand at that time for those new entrants into the all share. Okay. I mean, it's interesting to see what's happened to uh, the share price of Ashoka India. Let's just, just check on that. As you say, it's uh, performed very well. Has it uh, suffered at all this week? How has that one gone over the last month? I mean, I've got it trading on about a 3% discount or so at the moment. That compares with an average premium over the previous 12 months of about 2%. It has seen some, funnily enough, share price weakness over the last month or so. It's down about 13%, um, obviously a very short time period. But that compares with some of its peers in that kind of India subsector. I mean, India capital growth, which has also got a bit more of a mid-cap exposure, that's down 20%, whereas Aberdeen, New India down 8%, and JP Morgan, Indian down 6%. So that kind of mid and small cap area of the Indian markets um, just struggled a little bit over the last month or so. Well, we can come back and talk perhaps about which investment trusts have performed better in these markets and, and which have performed worse and what's happened to discounts. They've obviously widened. Uh, as I said, there's quite a wide dispersion in those numbers if one looks at them. But well, in the meantime, let's move on and talk about some other news. Let's start off by talking about EP Global Opportunities Trust, ticker EPG. This is a investment trust that has just changed the way it operates and what it's aiming to do. Give us an update on uh, on how that uh, particular decision has proceeded this week. So again, we talked about this one on a number of occasions. So basically, it's moved to become a self-managed investment trust. So Sandy Nairn, who has been involved in this investment trust since its launch, uh, he will take responsibility for it. But the news this week was the result of its tender offer. So as part of these proposals, there was a 20% tender offer put on the table. That was oversubscribed. 32% of the issued share capital was tendered. So therefore, a scaling back exercise was undertaken. Um, but the result of all that is that uh, the fund is now sitting with assets of about £94 million. Sandy, who's uh, always been a big shareholder in the, in the investment trust, now owns 13%. Uh, presumably because he didn't tender any of his own personal shares. But that tender was done at a 3.5% discount to NAV. Yes, and I think, uh, as I mentioned before on this podcast, Sandy Nern is someone I've known very well, and I've co-written a book with him. Uh, and last year, he published a book called The End of the Everything Bubble, in which he basically said markets were going to suffer substantially. And uh, the way that uh, this mandate's been changed is partly to do a reflection of that, plus the fact that he's, uh, as you say, his interests are now very closely aligned with that of the trust, given he's got a very large personal shareholding. And he's planning to take it forward in a way that um, aims to uh, reward shareholders if the world turns out to be as uh, difficult as he was forecasting last year. And that was, of course, before we had this uh, Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. So obviously, but the tender, there's going to be an overhang of stock very clearly over this, which may depress the share price for a while if those investors still want to get out at some point. So uh, how has that been trading and what's happening to the discount on that one? So I've got it on a discount of about 11% or so at the moment, and that compares with an average over the previous 12 months, about 8%. So it's a little bit wider. Right. But obviously, the way things are turning out so far, at least uh, in relative terms, the new look and new approach uh, may actually turn out to be more popular with some investors who worry about what's going to happen from here. Uh, that remains to be seen. Let's move on and talk about Scott Gems, ticker SGEM. Tell us what that does, this particular trust, and uh, what's the news here? Yeah, now this was an interesting development, actually. So just to remind people uh, who've perhaps not come across Scott Gems, it's effectively a global small cap investment trust. It's historically had a focus on Asia Pacific and emerging markets. It was launched back in 2017 and it raised about £50 million or so at that time. But the development this week 
was that the board has been informed by First Centia Investors Group that they've decided to close down their St. Andrews Partners investment team. Now, that's the team that's been responsible for the management of the Scott Gems investment portfolio. So the board has basically got to kind of think through how this is all going to work. And in fact, they did provide an update later on in the week and made the point that actually Centia Investments had not yet submitted their notice to the board. Uh, and so therefore, you know, will provide continuity of management while the board considers their options. But the intention is to consult with their largest shareholders in due course. So this is a relatively unusual occurrence, I think it's fair to say. The investment managers don't tend to give up the job of managing a mandate like this. Um, the board may often you know, precipitate that kind of uh, action, but this appears to be something initiated by the investment managers themselves. And is this anything to do with the, do you think, the performance of this particular trust? I mean, how has it been performing and how big is it? Has it got a credible future? Well, performance has been an issue. Size has been an issue. So no, they're all good points. So I've got the size of about £39 million market cap at the moment. So it's certainly on the small side uh, and trading on about a 16% discount. In terms of its uh, performance numbers, certainly on a three-year NAV total return basis, they're down 7%. And in that global small cap kind of peer group, you've got names such as Smithson, uh, obviously quite well known, up 46%. Edinburgh Worldwide up 33%, despite its uh, recent troubles. And in fact, even North Atlantic smaller companies up 46%. So it's fair to say Scott Gems has certainly struggled against its peer group. So we'll have to watch that one carefully. What happens there? You'd imagine that if the investment managers are determined to go, then uh, presumably the board may well decide this trust is too small to continue. Would that be your thinking on this one? That's certainly a possibility. I mean, Angus Tullock, who people might remember, he was the former joint managing partner of Stuart Investors and a very well-known and respected kind of value-orientated Asian equities investor. He's actually on the board and uh, my recollection is he has quite a, a significant stake in this particular investment trust. In fact, I think he was probably one of the people who originally came up with the idea. So it's a little bit friends and family. The shareholder is, again, my recollection. So I think they'll kind of work out what's the best thing to do with this one. Yes, I'm just looking at the annual report and I see that the uh, the directors and the investment management team have uh, significant shelding. So you say that might be an interesting uh, situation for them to decide what to do. It's slightly different when you're a small trust, but you do have significant shareholdings in it. It says the combined holdings of the board and investment manager now represent 23.8% of the issued share capital. But that was in the annual report, which came out some time ago. Okay, so move on. Let's talk about strategic equity capital, ticker SEC. We know this has been a subject of a merger or acquisition approach from the Odyssean Investment Trust, but that's now dead. What's the news from them this week? So the announcement, just kind of following on from that, is that there will be a general meeting on the 23rd of March, and that's to approve the series of measures that the board proposed. So that included a 10% tender offer and adoption of a new buyback policy and a buyback program. So that's all subject to shareholder approval, uh, and that will be sought at a general meeting on the 23rd of March. Probably the only additional new announcement uh, that came in this week was that a gentleman called Adam Conby, uh, who has been involved in the investment management of this one for a number of years, has actually resigned from Gresham House. So Ken Wooten, who's the lead manager, he continues uh, to be involved. He's responsible, but Adam has moved on. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about the uh, proposed merger between 24 Income Fund and UK Mortgages, two trusted involved in the in the debt sector mainly, ticker TFIF and UKML, and they've put out some more information about the proposed merger. That's right. So obviously we knew that this was on the table and this week we learnt that the circular has been published in the prospectus and again shareholder permission will be sought for this and there's going to be an EGM on the 18th of March and if that shareholder approval is forthcoming the merger will happen on the 24th of March. So this is moving on apace. Okay. So let's now move on and talk about some results. But perhaps before we do that, we might just quickly, if you're able, Simon, just tell us a little bit about um, who's done well and who's done badly over the course of this uh, last week or 10 days or month even, perhaps we should say, in terms of performance, in terms of NAV and also in terms of discounts. Are you, are you able to give us any light on that? What, what sort of trusts are doing well and what sort of trusts are struggling in this environment? 
Yes, well, I think you made the comment at the start of the podcast that there's been a huge uh, dispersion in terms of returns. And I think that's absolutely true. So if you just look at, I mean, a month is a very, very short time period, but I think it does give us some insight into how uh, funds are performing, particularly given their mandates. Um, I think it's all very, very well to say a fund is up or a fund is down, but it's really what you would expect it from given the different market conditions. So I've got numbers here in front of me for over the last month or so. No great surprise that uh, the JP Morgan Russian Securities Fund is the worst performer. Uh, is, as I think we've already mentioned, this is down 82%. The Bearings Emerging EMEA Opportunities Fund, that's down 31%. So we kind of expect that given where we are. But thereafter, there's some kind of slightly unusual names. So Standard Life Private Equity, which to my knowledge has no exposure at all to, uh, to Russia, to Ukraine or for Eastern Europe in general, that's down 21% over the last month in share price terms. Another name that's not obviously impacted by the geopolitical risk that we're seeing at the moment is Augmentum Fintech. It is obviously a lot of private companies, a lot of tech companies, growth companies. That's down 18% in share price terms over the last month. And again, another private equity name, MB Private Equity, down 17%. So you could say or can assume from that that a lot of the private equity names are certainly being hit by this turmoil uh, in the marketplace. I mean, at the other end of the scale, you know, perhaps it is quite impressive, but there are a number that have actually achieved positive returns over the last month. Again, those exposed to the resources sector in general have done well. So Geiger Counter, uh, again, maybe for obvious reasons, in share price terms, that's up 26% in the last month. BlackRock World Mining up 17%. BlackRock Energy and Resources income, that's up about 16%. So again, all those kind of resources names doing well. Aside from that, well, actually, funnily enough, UK Mortgages is one of the best performers on the back of that uh, merger proposal that we talked about. Uh, that's up 10%. But you have to probably go down the list a little bit um, to find a kind of non-corporate activity or resources play. But then you come across Foresight Solar Fund, that's up 7% in share price terms over the last month. And there is this argument that some of the renewable energy infrastructure names will be beneficiaries. Obviously, some of them have you know, direct exposure to energy prices. And so they are benefiting from this environment uh, and also a greater focus on energy security and all the rest of it kind of plays to that particular theme. So, you know, again, you see names such as Greencoat, UK Wind in positive uh, territory as well. So that's the kind of flavour of those funds that are doing well and those that are struggling a little bit at the moment. I mean, aside from the obvious areas, I mean, you see names in the biopharma and uh, healthcare space in general, biotech, Worldwide Healthcare Trust uh, in positive territory, up 2%. Polar Capital Global Healthcare, not too far behind it. Biopharma Credit, which is a little bit different in a similar kind of return profile. So these are the names that have certainly stood up over the last month or so. Yes, it is interesting. And uh, of course, we have to remind ourselves that this is all happening. What's happening in Ukraine is all happening against the background of considerable interest and uncertainty about what the Federal Reserve and other central banks are going to do and how far they will now be able to implement the higher interest rates and possibly monetary tightening that they've talked about. And we say we, that this has had a big impact on uh, the performance of different trusts as well as or even before we got to this uh, particular point. But I think one thing one can say is that there does appear to be a view amongst investors that the kind of interest rate rises, as you mentioned at the beginning, were, were being anticipated by many investors uh, before this all happened and now expecting something less dramatic. And that may explain why some of these movements have been quite significant. For example, I noticed that uh, Polar Capital Global Financials have been down quite sharply. They just managed to get their fundraising away. Uh, but obviously, if interest rates are going to not go up as much as they thought, that's going to have a negative impact on banks and so on. So it's very much uh, a combination of factors, I think, that's going on at the moment. I'm going to mention now that uh, if you're a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle this week, I've actually included another podcast that I recorded earlier this week with a gentleman called Peter Silen, who's a fund manager whose family hails from Central Europe and has a very interesting perspective on uh, what's been going on with the Russian invasion and what it all means. He's a very successful fund manager, quality growth investor. There's that. And then we've got a profile of Roundhill Music Royalty, which uh, one of the arguments that was put forward for why you should consider investing in the Music Royalty Trust was that they are not correlated with the markets overall. This will be a good test of that, a very interesting sector in itself. And then also I've done a Q&A with uh, Hamish Bailey, the manager of the Ruffer Investment Trust, who also has a lot of interesting things to say. Ruffer obviously has done pretty well through this crisis as they are 
uh, one of the defensive investment trusts that uh, investors turn to for capital preservation. So anyway, moving on, we're going to talk about next some results. We're going to have to race through some of these, given the amount of time we've already spent talking about, obviously, more important issues of Ukraine and corporate activity. Let's talk about JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, ticker JGGI. They've had some uh, interim results. Yeah, and a decent set of interim results for the six months to the end of December. NAV total return up 8.2%. That compares to a rise of 7.7% for the MSCI All Country World Index. Share price terms a little bit better, actually up 9.9%. And perhaps unsurprisingly, given the way that this fund is set up, it's all about stock selection. That's what drove the outperformance and a number of stocks performed very well. One of the interesting things in the commentary was that they've trimmed their exposure to technology companies. In fact, they're now underweight technology, although they still have core positions in Alphabet and Amazon. And also they've reduced their gearing levels down. And that was uh, something that was started in the middle of last year on valuation concerns. And in fact, they sat with a bit of a small cash position at the end of 2021. So that's our last trust with a strong track record. Let's talk about Murray International next. This is a uh, global equity income trust. Its performance has been, uh, I think it's fair to say, relatively poor over the last few years. But that reflects the uh, particular viewpoint of the manager, Bruce Stout. And uh, who knows, maybe his time is coming. What have they had to say, uh, Simon? So annual results for the year ended 31st of December. NAV total return up 14.1%. That represented an underperformance of the FTSE All World Index. That was up 20%. And in share price terms, they were up 7.2% as their rating weakened during that year. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the headwind came once again from being underweight US uh, technology. Also, some of the stock selection, particularly amongst the European names, were a little bit weak. But in more encouraging news, uh, their total dividend for the period totaled 55p. That was up just under 1%. And in fact, revenue per share was up just nearly 11% actually. So a strong increase in their revenue per share to 51.7p. So in other words, the dividend was uncovered. And in fact, the payment of the final dividend will use about 36% of their revenue reserves. So their level of gearing had been reduced down a little bit to uh, equities as well. So still about 3% or so at the end of last year. Indeed. And uh, this particular trust, its performance, obviously, it uh, it dipped last year, but most of that was in the first half. Uh, It's actually done much better more recently, has it not? And uh, what's happened to the rating here? It has been a long period of of underperformance. But uh, are people coming back to that one now, do you think? Well, I've got it on a discount of about 6% or so at the moment. That compares to an average discount of 2% over the previous 12 months. It's worth noting in that global equity income peer group, it's the highest or one of the highest, I should say, yielders. It's 4.7% yield uh, on a historic basis. And you're right, certainly in terms of the last six months, say, I mean, they've delivered a positive NAV return of about 6% or so. And that over that very short time period is the best performer. But then, you know, you push that out to, say, five years and um, they're up 32 percent compared with an average of 41 percent for their peer group. So that's uh, exactly the issue that you've identified. Yes. And it's actually trading a bit higher than it was at the start of the year. So it's actually up this year. And I guess it's uh, another example of how, you know, there's always a choice with investment trust, whether you want to stick with a manager who's uh, has a style and a particular approach, which he's, uh, you know, publicizes and rigorously adheres to that, or whether you want someone who's going to try and move around, change his style and so on. I mean, Bruce Stout's been very much on the view that the American market's overvalued. There's much more uh, safety in, uh, you know, relatively high yielding global stocks elsewhere. And he's stuck through that through thick and thin. And uh, his time will come because these things do tend to move in cycles. Let's move on and talk about a couple of flexible investment trusts. These are ones which at least hold out the promise to their shareholders that they will perform well when markets are doing relatively poorly. Let's talk about, first of all, RIT Capital Partners, ticker RCP, founded by Jacob Rothschild in the 1980s. He's now retired, but has a very strong team managing a multi-asset portfolio. What does their annual report have to say? It's a strong set of results, actually. These were the annual results for the year ended 31st of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 23.6%. That compared with a rise of 10.5% for RPI plus 3%, or 20% for the MSCI All Country World Index. In share price terms, they came in at 35.1%, and apparently that's their strongest 
share price return for 18 years. They also generated a total dividend of 35.25p and the intention is to pay a dividend of 37p for 2022. So what happened here? Well, the portfolio is a very interesting portfolio, but it was really the private investments, I think, saw strong performance in 2021. Funnily enough, the valuations of unlisted technology holdings rose sharply. Um, they had a holding in a company called Coupang, which is a South Korean company that did very well on its listing. And despite headwinds from their Chinese and biotech exposure, their quoted equity book made a positive contribution as well. It's worth noting that the average quoted equity exposure was about 43% or so for 2021. So it really is a uh, kind of diversified portfolio. Private investments stood at about 36, 37% at the end of last year. Always an interesting investment report about the state of the world at the moment, but the currency mix uh, is focused on the US dollar and sterling, while the investment team are looking to avoid the euro and the yen. Their gearing stood about 6% or so at the end of last year. And certainly judging from the commentary, the investment team expects short-term volatility, particularly in high growth sectors. Yeah, some shares have come off a little bit, I think, recently in the last few couple of weeks. Uh, but I imagine that's partly because these private equity valuations, they were at the end of December. Uh, and we know that uh, private equity have been marking down valuations uh, since then because of the movement in the uh, in the public markets. I think we heard Scottish Mortgage talking about that this week. They've marked down a lot of their private company holdings by around 10%, I seem to recall. So uh, that may have been a factor. And these shares, they were still uh, trading at a discount, which is not where they were before the pandemic hit. They normally traded at a premium, as I recall. So uh, if you're a bargain hunter, this might be something you want to look at. If you're a long-term investor, want to tap into a trust with a, a very strong long-term track record. Uh, certainly something to look at, not making a recommendation here, just saying that that's uh, a notable feature. How has this one been trading uh, in the last couple of years, uh, Simon? Yeah, well, you're right that it has been derated. So to put some numbers around that, it's averaged about a 4% discount over the previous 12 months. But we have seen a range during that time, and it has been on a premium at stages. It's currently on a discount of probably about 10 or 11% or so. So we have seen it derated. But the the long term, I mean, obviously, I gave you the numbers there for 2021, but the long term track record in NAV total return terms for the last five years, um, they've generated a return of 65% or so. And in that flexible investment subsector, certainly the weighted average return would come in about 44%. So they're ahead of that. Yes, yeah, so just to make the point again that the NAV that uh, the discount is being effectively measured against uh, may have come down since the end of the year. So it might not be quite as significant a discount of the underlying valuations as it might appear at first sight. And let's move on then and talk about Ruffer Investment Company. I said that we had done a Q&A with Hamish Bailey, one of the managers of this trust this week, had a lot of interesting things to say about their approach and, and uh, how they've done in the last year. But they've just published some interim results as well. And uh, you can fill us in on what they look like. Yep. So these were interim results for the six months to the end of December. And obviously, Ruff is very much about capital preservation. And in that time period, they generated an NAV total return of 2.8%, a positive return. The share price total return came in at 2.6%. But for last year, for the full 12 months of last year, the NAV and share price total returns were 11.4% and 12.7% respectively, which uh, historically would be a good return for rougher investment company in any given year. So what worked well for them? Well, index-linked bonds added to the performance in that six-month period, and they were actively traded and uh, managed the duration of those bonds. The gains that they had from equities were actually offset by equity put protection. So, you know, this is quite a sophisticated portfolio, to be honest. About 40% of the portfolio is allocated to equities, or it certainly was last year. But always a very good investment commentary. The managers believe that we have transitioned into a new economic regime of higher inflation and volatility. Yes, and among the many things they highlight in the interim results was the extraordinary nature of last year when we had this combination of massive stimulus and the recovery from COVID. And they make the point, among other features of that year, was that there were more equity inflows into equity funds over the course of the year was uh, greater than the previous 19 years combined. Obviously, that included years when the market went up and years it went down. Uh, but still a striking statistic, and they see evidence of uh, the frothiness of markets that we've been talking about a lot. So we're going to move on and we're going to go through some results. Obviously, it's worth bearing in mind that because of the events of this year, 
Most of these results are for the period to the end of last year, or second half of last year, and so they are somewhat out of date. So we're going to kind of perhaps skim through them a little more quickly than we would normally do. But let's kick off with Ashoka India Equity Investment Trust. We said they were being promoted into the FTSE indices, and I dare say their results will tell us why that has happened. That's ticker AIE. That's right. So these were interim results for six months to the end of December. They generated an NAV total return of 25.2% in that period. And that compared with the MSCI India IMI index, which was up 15.4%. In share price terms, they were even stronger, actually up 26.2%. But it's very much about the stocks. More than 50% of this portfolio is focused on mid and small cap names. And they were the names that really drove the performance in this particular period. Okay, so we want to talk about European Opportunities Trust, ticker EOT. Tell us about them, what their results look like. Yeah, again, so interim results for the six months, but to the end of November last year, and a good set of results. Actually, the NAV total return was up 12.8%. That compared with a rise of 3.8% for the MSCI Europe Index. Uh, In share price terms, not quite as good, actually up 9.9% as the discount widened out a little bit. But the outperformance in the period was attributed to the fund's focus on companies whose business models are not especially vulnerable to rising inflation and high interest rates, as well as a minimal exposure to the more ambitious green stocks. So the names that did well for them in the period is Novonorsk, Dassault Systems and Experian. But uh, obviously, Alexander Darwell, uh, a highly experienced manager, enjoying uh, a little bit of a, a stronger period for him there. Yes, after his uh, troubles earlier on with Wirecard, which was a big blow for that particular trust and raised questions in some minds about their risk controls and so on. Uh, Let's move on and talk about the European Smaller Companies Trust, ticker ESCT. Uh, They also had some half-year results. Yep, six months to the end of December. It's worth noting, actually, the European Smaller Companies Trust was previously called TR European Growth. Um, That's the only thing that's really changed. It's still Ollie Beckett of Janice Henderson is responsible for this one. A relatively quiet period. The NAV total return was down slightly about 1.4%. The share price total return down about 2.4%. And the benchmark was actually up 4.1%. So that underperformance, again, was attributed to the contrast between the fund's style and the growth-led market during that six-month period. Um, There was also some stock-specific issues as well, a few of the holdings that had previously done well, so known kind of COVID winners effectively just struggled in that six-month period. I mean, it's been a tough period for small companies generally. Discount on that one? So European smaller companies is trading on about a 12% discount uh, also at the moment, and that compares with an 11% discount over the previous 12 months. Okay, then we've also had an announcement from uh, Fidelity Emerging Markets. We've covered that to some extent, but they also put out some interim results, uh, which I guess don't mean very much, given that Fidelity was only managing this for a very short period of time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So these were interim results for the six months to the end of December. Fidelity were appointed on the 4th of October. And in fact, the portfolio transition really only was completed on the 1st of November. So you've only got two months in that six-month period that it was a, a, you know, a genuine Fidelity fund. Okay, and then let's talk about JP Morgan Emerging Markets, a ticker JMG. They've had interim results to the 31st of December. That's right, in which time they saw their NAV total return decline about 4.1%. That compared with a decline of 7.5% for the benchmark. Share price total return down about 3.7% as the discount narrowed a little bit. But significant portfolio activity in the period, and they took some profits on various holdings that had done well for them. And they made the point that the Russian exposure in the portfolio is now below 1%. Okay, so this is uh, one of the bigger trusts in the emerging market sector. We've quite a good track record for emerging markets as these things go. You mentioned before, there's been some significant widening of discounts in this area. Has this been one of the areas which have helped to widen the average investment trust discount over the recent weeks? Yeah, no, I think that's right. So if you look at the case of the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Fund, that's probably averaged about a 5-6% discount over the previous 12 months. It now finds itself on a 10% discount, and that's not uncommon. I mean, Templeton Emerging Markets, also a very big fund in this space, an average discount of 8% over the previous 12 months, finds itself on a 14% discount at present. Okay, let's move on and talk about Pacific Horizon. They've had some interim results as well. They have indeed. They've had interim results for the six months to the end of January this year. In that time, they saw an NAV total return down 3.7%. 
And that compared with a decline of 2.7% for the MSCI All Country Asia X Japan Index. In share price terms, they were down 7.5%. So they saw a little bit of a derating. But quite an interesting set of results, these. I mean, obviously, Pacific Horizon is part of the Bailey Gifford stable. And so, as you would expect, there is a kind of growth flavor to what Roderick Snell does, uh, who's the investment manager, how he runs this particular portfolio. But he made the point in the results that his philosophy is to embrace growth in all its forms. So he's quite happy to, as he put it, shift into, and indeed has, into a kind of more cyclical growth areas. So at the moment, the largest overweight is uh, mining and also exposure to industrials and energy has picked up. In terms of countries, well, he's underweight China. And I think we've talked about this one historically. China was a big bet for this portfolio going back a year or two. uh, And that's been shifted now. And India is the kind of key exposure and Vietnam actually the second largest overweight position. So even though it's been a quiet period for Pacific Horizon, the long-term track record still remains very strong. Okay, so we're going to move on and talk about some specialist trusts now. And we're going to kick off with a private equity trust, Apex Global Alpha. They've put out their annual results uh, for the year to the 31st of December. That's right. And a strong set of results. The NAV total return up 28.7%. And actually, this portfolio, there's a kind of private equity element that represents about 75% and what they call derived investments. So within that, you'll find kind of more private equity debt. So it was the private equity element that drove returns in this particular period, up 41%, whereas the derived investments portfolio was up uh, just short of 16%. But again, familiar story, and we're going to see this now from a lot of these private equity companies reporting to the end of 2021. That particular year was very, very strong for realizations. And in fact, the distributions from their private equity portfolio saw an average uplift of 50%. But one of the things to note for all these private equity funds is where they are now in terms of the valuation levels and their exposure to publicly listed companies. Obviously, a lot of these private equity funds saw IPOs last year. And so that means that they are now exposed to the movements in public markets. But just to put some numbers on that, the valuation multiple for Apex Global Alpha at the end of 2021 was 23.2 times enterprise value EBITDA. And that compares with 16.9 times a year earlier. And that will be on a comparable multiple basis. So you get this idea that the move in the value of uh, particularly technology companies to which this particular investment trust has quite a high exposure, about 40% or so, has really driven those valuation gains. And as we see the markets reset a little bit in 2022, there are implications for the, the valuations of these portfolios. Indeed. And the shares on this one are down quite notably uh, from their start of year levels, which, as I say, as I mentioned earlier, in the case of RAT and others, there is going to be markdowns in NAVs, almost certainly, given what's happened, uh, unless there's some dramatic changes before the next uh, valuation point. So uh, BB Healthcare Trust, ticker BBH, they've had an annual report out. They have. They had annual results for the year to the 30th of November. In that time, their NAV total return came in at 10.3%. That compares with a return of 16.3% for their benchmark. In share price terms, that came in at 11.4% as they moved to a premium rating. But obviously, a period of underperformance, and really there were some stock-specific issues. There was a company called Insmed, which represented about 6% of the portfolio. That was down about a third, and they have had five more holdings that fell about 20%. But it's worth noting that they've just changed the name of this investment company. So it's now known as the Bellevue Healthcare Trust, and that was adopted on the 2nd of March. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride for these uh, healthcare and biotech trusts, has it not? I mean, they've been coming back into favour in the last week or so. But uh, how is that sector generally uh, trading now, given they've had such a, a volatile time over the last uh, couple of years? So the average discount on the biotech and healthcare sector is about 2% or so, but there is quite a variation. So, you know, the Bellevue Healthcare Trust, that's on about a 4% discount. Worldwide Healthcare Trust, which is the largest constituent in this area, that's on about a 6-7% discount at the moment. That's run by the team at Orbimed, who are also responsible for the Biotech Growth Trust. That's on about a 1% discount. But then the Polar Capital Global Healthcare Fund, you find that on a 10% discount. So, there's quite a range of ratings in this space. And then let's talk about Greencoat Renewables, ticker GRP, which does what it says on the tin. They've also had some annual results out. That's right. Annual results again to the end of December last year. So their NAV was up 4.1 cents. So it's a euro denominated stock. 
And that was a reflection of higher market power prices and also a degree of inflation protection as well. Uh, in terms of the dividend, well, that was declared at 6.06 cents. And in fact, they've got a target of 6.18 cents for 2022. The gross dividend cover for 2021 came in at one and a half times. But again, familiar story for these wind farm plays, energy generation 16% below budget, effectively because of the very low wind resource last year. But the portfolio has been built out and it's been increased to 25 assets now. We've talked in the past about some of the derating that's gone in, in the renewable energy space over the uh, last couple of years, uh, or at least particularly last year. And I think last week we mentioned uh, some of the solar trusts, but they've all been picking up this week and this year. And I think Greencoat Renewables is now trading at an all-time high. Is I right about that? So I've got Greencoat Renewables sent at the close of Thursday at €1.17, which represents a 12% premium rating. So, yes, you're, you're right. Many of the names in this space have um, been positively re-rated over the last month or so. Okay, so finally, we're going to just mention a couple of property trusts. We're going to quickly mention Supermarket Income REIT, uh, ticker SUPR, which has been one of the most popular specialist property trusts recently. And they put out some results to the 31st of December. Do they justify the popularity, Simon? <laughs> well, their EPRA NTA per share, which is equivalent to NAV, that was up 5% in the period. And what you can say about this one is that it's certainly grown in size. So the direct portfolio was valued at one4 billion at the end of last year. Uh, and obviously, they saw some valuation growth in that time as well. The income side of it's uh, very, very important. In fact, dividends totaling 3p per share were declared compared with 2.9p in the previous six-month period. In fact, they had dividend covered of 1.13 times. They've also provided some guidance in terms of their 2022 financial year target dividend, and that's been set at 5.94p per share. Which represents what in terms of dividend yield, despite the strong rating of this one? What are they offering investors in terms of a yield? So I've got them on my screen about 4.8% at the moment, uh, despite the fact they're trading on a premium of about 9% at present. And then finally, we're going to look at Tritax Big Box REIT, ticker BBOX. We've also put out some results to the 31st of December. Yeah, these were annual results and a very strong period for Tritax. Their EPRA NTA per share was up 26.8% in that year. And in fact, the portfolio, we're talking about supermarket income REIT, well, actually, Tritax Big Box REIT, its portfolio was valued at $5.5 billion. So this one has really grown over recent years. They're moving the portfolio around a little bit. So they're looking to dispose of assets this year uh, in the region of 100 million to 200 million pounds. And there is a bit more of a concentration on development. So 8% of the gross portfolio is exposed to development plays now. And they also have options on uh, a land bank as well. So quite a big pipeline of future development. And that's all kind of UK big boxes, as the name would suggest. But obviously, the yield is an important part of the story. And earnings per share came in at 7.38p. And that was up from 6.91p in the previous year. And in fact, dividends per share totaled 6.7p, again, up from 6.4p in the previous year. And that represented a payout ratio of 91%. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this eventful week where television screens have been filled with images that many of us hope we would not see again. Talking to your fund manager contacts and your clients, Simon, this week, can you give us any sense of whether there's any kind of consensus emerging about how this might play out, what the impact this is going to have over the course of the year? I mean, I'm inclined to say it's too early to say, but I just wonder what kind of reaction you've been hearing from those uh, both sides of the fence, so to speak, from the fund managers and uh, and from your clients, the investors. Yeah, all very good and very valid questions. And, and really, it is clearly the key talking point. I mean, there is an argument, frankly, that capital markets in general were complacent about the risks posed by Putin. I think there was an expectation that perhaps something would happen, but it would be a relatively muted affair. I mean, some people have talked to me about the idea that this would be kind of Crimea part two and that there'd be a lot of heat and, and noise in terms of uh, Western politicians complaining and a level of sanctions, but effectively the impact on the market would be relatively muted. I think it's become very clear over the last week that that is not the case, that this is something quite different and very substantial. And I think, you know, to your point, people are still working through the implications. I think what is certain, though, is that people's relatively positive outlook at the start of this year in terms of economic growth is now being questioned. 
And I think people are looking to position themselves accordingly. Uh, you know, as we discussed earlier, there's some kind of first order impacts. But it's, it is difficult for investment managers. I mean, clearly, the oil price or energy prices in general have, have increased. We talked about the resources sector benefiting. But many uh, investment managers are not exposed to their areas. It will be a key underweight. And that presents them with quite a difficult challenge at the moment, how to react to that. I think some people are quite happy to take slightly different approaches or maybe uh, move into names that offer a degree of protection. But I get the, the feeling overall that most people are taking a little bit of a wait and see approach. I don't think investment managers in general are kind of winging their portfolios around aggressively. I think there's a lot of red on the screen. You know, I suspect liquidity in some names will be quite fleeting. And I think it's very much a case of you know, how is this all going to play out? I think the longer it goes on, though, it's that old truism that the market hates uncertainty. And the longer that this goes out and the more serious that it becomes, I think a lot of investment managers will kind of take action in terms of positioning their portfolios. But for the time being, at least, I think there is a little bit of a let's hope for the best, but perhaps start mentally preparing for the worst. Indeed. And I think that's a very fair perspective to take. I mean, one of the achievements of the Ukrainian president has been to keep this on the front pages, if you like. I mean, it obviously is a spectacular event, far more significant than the Crimea one in terms of uh, the impact on markets. And as long as it's on the front page, as long as the politicians are united in their response to this, it's going to stay on the front pages for some time. And that does have a bearing on uh, on how markets behave. They tend to have a habit of, you know, if things are out of the spotlight, it makes it easier to get back to normal, if you like, business as normal. But I think the implications of this are so profound uh, in many ways that it will take time for this to, to really uh, bottom out. And uh, while markets have a good record of pricing these things in the end, uh, while there's this volatility, I think you're going to see more confusion for a while. Anyway, Simon, thank you. It's been, as I said, a very eventful week and not a very agreeable one for anybody living in the West. But um, show goes on. We must uh, continue. And uh, I apologise for the fact that we have actually taken rather longer this week than normal. But I hope you'll feel that that was justified by the, uh, the nature of what we're going through at the moment. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.